0: Amen. Please take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 7 once again. In our passage last week, we saw Jesus heal a servant who was near to death, a valued servant of a, a Roman centurion. And then in the next passage, he raised a young man from the dead who was being carried out of a small town to be buried with his weeping mother behind him. These were amazing stories of Jesus' power power and compassion and people who were there that day and witnessed them and heard about them perhaps went and told someone who would be very interested to know what Jesus was doing and these were disciples of John the Baptist and that's where we pick up in chapter 7 verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things, all these miracles that Jesus has just performed to John. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed, Jesus healed, many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners." Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Perhaps you heard this past week about the 44-year-old local journalist who died of cancer. Tragically, he died in the same hospice care center where his wife died less than three years ago of cancer. And they left behind an 11-year-old son, now to wake up each day in a world without parents. That story... I'm sure if you heard it, it struck you as incredibly sad. If you're just now hearing it, hopefully it still strikes you as incredibly sad that this is the world we live in. And what that story reminds me of is that we live in a Genesis 3 world where we are still waiting to get back to a Genesis 1 and 2 world. We live under the curse. We live in a world where we see people who have sight lose their sight and and go blind, perhaps through an accident or through some chemical reaction. We live in a world where people, uh, rather than being raised from the dead, we see children and their parents dying. Rather than seeing the lame start walking, we see energetic, vibrant people paralyzed because of an accident with a drunk driver. We live in a tragic, a tragedy filled world. And circumstances cause us to doubt that Jesus is able to fulfill our expectations for him. That certainly was the problem that John the Baptist was experiencing while he was in prison. And maybe you had forgotten that that's where John was when we read this passage. The last time he was really significantly mentioned was back in chapter 3, verse 20. And what we have there is him preaching that people should repent and bear fruits of repentance, uh, give evidence of the fact that they are repentant. And one of the people he preached the gospel to and said, you need to repent, was uh, Herod, who had just recently gotten into a relationship with his brother's wife, and so Herod uh, was being confronted by John the Baptist, and as a response to that, Herod threw John the Baptist into prison. And Luke expects that you remember that. That's why he didn't say here in chapter 7, verse 18, by the way, footnote, remember, John's in prison. He didn't have to say that because he assumes you've kept reading from chapter 3, uh, verse 20. And so when he says that the when Luke says that the disciples of John reported all these things to him, it's because the only way John was going to hear what was happening in the life of Jesus at this point, or in Israel in general at this point, was through his friends, his disciples, those who knew him and followed him and preached the same message as him to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. The only way they would know that is through their disciples coming and telling him that. And so John, sitting there in prison, hearing that Jesus is raising sick people, healing sick people, and raising the dead, he has a question in his mind, as you would have as well. Who is this guy? Is he the one who is to come? Who we've been waiting to come? But doesn't that question kind of strike you as a little odd? I mean, back in chapter 3, when he was preaching, let me just go back, and I'm just going to kind of wing this, if you don't mind for a second. Uh, What he says in, let's see here, I apologize, but okay, here we go, in chapter uh, 3, verse 15, as the people were in expectation, looking for the Messiah, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And so here he is preaching good news, verse 18 says. Preaching a message of repentance and preparation for the Messiah. And you would think he knew who the Messiah was. You would think he knew it was Jesus. But here he is, he's locked up in prison. And perhaps he's mystified that Jesus is doing certain things or is not doing other certain things. Because even from the passage that Israel read from us in Malachi 3, a passage that contains both hope and judgment, Perhaps John was saying, where's the judgment? If, if this is the Messiah, why am I still suffering? Why am I still in jail? Why are good people still going through hard times? And he's waiting for this Messiah to do what the expectations were for him to do, which was free them from their persecutors, from their uh, national enemies. And he says, if you are the Messiah, how come you're not doing all these things we're waiting for you to do? And so that's why John the Baptist sends his friends to Jesus. But what this passage is doing for us today is is demonstrating for us that Jesus truly is the Messiah. He is the true Messiah. And the passage then, the implication of the passage is humble yourself before him. If Jesus is the one who is fulfilling messianic expectations, the hope of the one who would come to make all the wrong things right again, make all the sad things come untrue, How come he's not doing those things? But Jesus is demonstrating here that he is the true Messiah and so we then should humble ourselves before him. Here in verses 18 through 23, we see that Jesus proved himself to be the true Messiah. In response to this question of, are you the one who is to come or should we keep waiting for somebody else who's going to do everything we're waiting for? Jesus proves himself to be the true Messiah and he does this not by just saying, yes to John's question. That probably would have satisfied John, I think. Yes, I am the, the one who is to come. Instead, he gives proofs of the fact that he is the true Messiah. He gives demonstrations that he is legitimate. Kind of like when you have a, a school that's accredited. Okay, You have a college that's accredited by the, and you just fill in the blank, it's usually like six or seven words. <laughs> Association. Well, that's the last word. And Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that school, that that school that's accredited by that organization is doing its job the right way. It's meeting the standards they're supposed to. Perhaps you you, you see a book that's published by a a reputable publishing house. How do you know this book is going to be worth reading? Because it's published by, say, Crossway or Baker or Zondervan, or if it's a secular book, maybe it's published by... Simon and Schuster or Penguin, or you could go on and on, but the fact that it has that label on the side of the book or on the back of the book tells you that this book is legitimate and that you should give it its time. You know, give give it uh, the time that it's worth. And in a similar way, Jesus says, just look at the proofs that I am legitimate, that what I'm saying is true. The uh, the accrediting acts that show that I am the true Messiah. And he, he lays out several of them here. He says, Go and tell John in verse 22 <clears throat> what you have seen and heard. So you notice, after they asked the question in verse 21, he healed many people of diseases and plagues. It's almost, instead of answering anything, he just says, Hang on, give me an hour, <laughs> and I'll show you whether I'm the true Messiah or not. So he heals people of diseases and plagues. He casts out evil spirits. Those who are blind, he gives sight. And he says, now go and tell John what you've seen and heard. Kind of like in the book of Acts, which Luke later wrote, the sequel to this book. You have Peter and John preaching. And what do they say? We can't but, we can't but say what we have seen and heard. We can't stop talking about what we've experienced, what we've seen God do through the power of the Spirit in fulfilling the, the ministry of Jesus. And so Jesus says the same thing here. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And this whole list, where is he getting this list from? Is he just making this up out of thin air like these will be good proofs that I'm the Messiah? No, what he's doing is quoting Isaiah chapter 35. And I'm going to read this passage to you. Verse 4 says, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And what will happen when the Messiah comes to save you? Verse 5 The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Chapter 61, verse 6 then, says that that this Messiah who comes will bring good news to the poor. So what Jesus is doing, he's actually alluding to several other passages in Isaiah, especially as well, in this answer. But what he's doing is he's connecting the dots for John the Baptist and for his disciples and for all those who were hearing him there that day. You've read that passage in Isaiah 35. You've read that passage in Isaiah 27. You've read that passage in Isaiah 61. Look at what I'm doing. I am fulfilling all these expectations. You can know then. You can take it to the bank that I am the true Messiah. Jesus is proving himself to be the true Messiah in verse 23. And he's doing so by, by demonstrating that Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in him. And he says in verse 23, specifically about John the Baptist, but then for all of us who hear what he has done and what, uh, who he was, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Remember back in chapter 6, he had a lot of beatitudes. Here's a, a singular beatitude. There's only one, and it's specifically for the benefit of John the Baptist, the one who's not put off by the fact that I have done certain things or have yet not done certain things so in other words maybe John was still waiting for the judgment for Jesus to drop the hammer where's this God of recompense who's going to come and, and bring judgment on our enemies and Jesus says don't be offended by what I've done or what I haven't done yet be patient wait you'll see that I will fulfill all these expectations A blessed is the one who's not offended by me or by the person who's who's willing to to not be ensnared or not troubled by me Verse 23, then, is is really a warning to not reject Jesus on the basis of him not fulfilling all your expectations. Uh, And every single person needs this warning. Every one of us and every person that we meet needs this warning to not reject Jesus, to not be offended by him, by what he says and by what he does. In verse 18 through 23, Jesus proved himself to be the true Messiah. And what Jesus does then in verses 24 through 28 is talk about the ministry of John the Baptist. And what he says is that John prepared the way for the Messiah. So Jesus proved himself to be the true Messiah. Next, in 24 through 28, John prepared the way for the Messiah. John's messengers took off running for the prison to go tell John, Yes, this really is the Messiah. You won't believe what we've just seen. And he. When when he leaves, it's as if Jesus turns to the crowd and goes, you know those guys? They're friends of John. They're his followers. Let me tell you a little bit more about John. It's been a while since you've seen him because you threw him in jail. But let me tell you who this guy was. And he says, John was not the type of person that you were probably expecting him to be. You would think that this person who's preaching that the kingdom of God is coming would be really nice and amicable and well-dressed and clean and sanitized John was not any of those things. He wasn't any of those things. It says in verse 24, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Remember when people were going out into the wilderness to hear John preaching and to be baptized by him at the Jordan River. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? And I think that that picture of a reed shaken by the wind is this idea of just something that is, is getting blown over. Kind of like uh, he's fickle, he's unstable, you're not sure what he's going to say. He's willing to be tossed back and forth. Kind of the, the Paul idea where he says that we should not be tossed like the waves by being grounded in sound doctrine, we're not tossed back and forth. But here he is, he's saying John was not a pushover. He wasn't what you might have expected him to be when you went out in the wilderness to hear him. And you might have also thought that this person would be really nicely dressed and be fairly normal. Instead, he's eating locusts dipped in honey, and he's wearing camel skin, you know, very uncomfortable garments. This is all coming from, from Matthew 3, particularly. And you think, why is this guy like this? He's so strange and and he doesn't quite fit our expectations. But Jesus says, look, if you wanted to see somebody who's well-dressed and professional and who meets your criteria for what you would expect a professional person to look for, to look like, go to to the kingdom. Go see what the king's court looks like. People there who are serving the king. That's where you might see this professional, clean, sanitized type of person. But John was not that person. He was willing to say the hard things and to do the hard things in order to, to preach the message that God had given him to preach. Jesus then asks his third question, "What did you go out into the prophet uh, into the wilderness to see?" "Were you going to see a prophet?" And he says, "Yes, you really did see a prophet, but not just any old prophet. The prophet who was the one who was saying Uh, the the prophet who Malachi himself was looking forward to when he says in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. He's coming to point you toward God and say, repent because God's kingdom is at hand. So this is, yes, a prophet. And he's like Elijah, and he's like Jeremiah, and he's like Ezekiel, and you could go on and on. But he's greater than all of those Because of his proximity to the Messiah, okay, so he's ministering in the day of the Messiah and often in the same place as the Messiah, and he's related to him, uh, to boot. But, so he was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. He was the prophet that Malachi was talking about in chapter 3, verse 1. And that's where this this quotation here in, in verse 27 is coming from that Israel read for us earlier. And he was specifically preparing the way for these people to get to God. He was making a straight path for them. He was clearing the obstacles out of the way, saying, you need repentance. That is the greatest need in your heart. And that's the greatest need in our heart as well. And so maybe you uh, have created a New Year's resolution to make some change in your life. And you would say, I am going to do this if it's the last thing that I do. I'm finally going to make this progress in my life. And that's good, but if what you're you know, it, it can be good, I should say. It depends on what you're talking about and you're welcome to talk to me about that afterwards. But um, if, if it's a spiritual matter, and you say, I'm finally going to get victory over this particular sin pattern in my life. Well, it's good to try and make that progress. But remember that the issue isn't just with your behavior. It's not just with your your bad talking patterns, right? So you're trying to to stop swearing or you're trying to stop uh, speaking crassly or complaining or whatever other, you know, you're trying to stop lying. Those are good goals. You should stop lying. But the problem isn't with what you say. The problem is with your heart. And that's what Jesus said in previous passages, that, that we need to see our hearts turn toward God, not just our mouths get cleaned up or what we view get cleaned up. And so the, the greatest need that these people had that Jesus and John were preaching to was repentance. And that's what we need as well is repentance before God, uh, a humility before God that says that he is right and that our hearts are wrong. And so in verse 28, talking about John, he says, I tell you, among those born of women, among those humans, Among those who are humans, none is greater than John. And obviously, Jesus here is excluding himself. Yes, he was born of of Mary, but he's thinking of those who are just human. Okay, So take Jesus out of the equation because he is also fully God, but John was not fully God. So of those who are just human, John's the best. But he says this shocking statement about everybody else who is part of God's family. The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than Than John. How is that possible? If John's the greatest human to ever live, anybody who's in the kingdom of God is now greater than him. How is that even possible? Before we even answer that, you have to ask what is this kingdom of God? And I think it's really a synonym for the family of God, for all those who are in Christ. When you put your faith in Christ, you now are part of the family of God. You now live under the reign of Christ, so you are part of the kingdom of God. He is the king. We live in his kingdom. We live for his glory, seeking to compel other people to join his kingdom. And so all of us are either part of the kingdom of man, or the the city of man, as Augustine would put it, or the city of God. You can't be in both. And so... All those who are unsaved, who are outside of Christ, are part of the city of God or the kingdom, of, are, are, are part of the city of man or the kingdom of man. All those who are in Christ, which I hope is all of us or, or, or most of us, uh, we are part of the kingdom of God. We are part of the family of God. We are part of the city of God. So again, Augustine has a book called "The City of God" and "The City of Man," and this goes back to about the year four hundred and thirty or so, and he's basically saying. Sometimes we don't know who is part of the city of God and who's part of the city of man. But for those of us who have repented, we are part of the city of God. And so we are part of the kingdom of God then. And what that means is we may be the most irrelevant, unimportant, ridiculous people in the eyes of the world because of what we believe and because of who we follow and because of what we do because of what we believe. But regardless of that, you are like kings and queens in the sight of God. That there is no one more important. And this is what Jesus means throughout the book of Luke when he says the first shall become last. The people who are most important will become the least important. And the last shall become first. There's this ironic overturning of the wisdom of man throughout the Bible. And that's what Jesus is describing here. And so those of us who are part of the kingdom of God are tremendously valued by God because we live in his kingdom. We are part of his family. Sometimes we might think it would have been great to be alive in the days of Elijah and Elisha because we would have gotten to see amazing miracles. But what Jesus is telling us is that by bringing in the new kingdom, we actually live at the best time in human history. We get to see amazing blessings that other people in previous generations including john the baptist would have only longed to be a part of like the holy spirit dwelling in our hearts it is a wonderful time to be alive as a christian by living under the new covenant in god's kingdom so verses 20 uh, 18 through 23 say that jesus proved himself to be the true messiah verses 24 through 28 say that John prepared the way for the Messiah. And verses 29 through the end of this chapter or through the end of this passage verse 35, I should say, show us what our response should be to this reality. And specifically it said every person is responsible for how they respond to the Messiah. You can declare him to be right or you can reject him and his message. Those are the two options that this passage lays out for us. So verse 29 is in parentheses here and it's likely Luke's comment when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too he puts I mean, you would think they're part of the all people like why is he putting them in their own category because they were such evil people in the eyes of people who were living then these were the the scum of societies we talked about with Levi previously in chapter 5 when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. What it means to declare God just is to say that God is right. It's to side with God. It's to admit that what God has said is true about himself and about you. So just to, to justify God in this case isn't about you know, taking care of God's sins, which he has none of. When we talk about God justifying us, it's him declaring us righteous before him on the merits of Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. There you go. There's all the Reformation <laughs> statements. But what this is saying is not that, that God is being declared just as in showing that he, you know, that his sins are taken care of. There's no such thing. It's saying God has faithfully said what is true about himself being totally righteous and about us being full of sin and needing repentance. And so these people who were being baptized with the baptism of John, which you remember was merely as a way of of demonstrating their hearts of repentance. That baptism in the Jordan River wasn't washing their sins away. It was a sign of the fact that they were repentant toward God. And so these people were being baptized as a way of saying, God is right. God's word is right. He hit the nail on the head about who he is and about who I am. That I am a terrible sinner before him. And so they acknowledged God's righteousness by being baptized with the baptism of John. But verse 30 shows that there are some people who didn't do that. They actually rejected what God said. They rejected God's call of free grace they chose not to be baptized by him which is a way of saying they chose to not repent of their sin and in so doing they rejected the purpose of god for themselves and these are the pharisees and the lawyers why would they reject what god said because they don't think they are the problem the problem is those awful tax collectors the problem is those awful prostitutes like in verse 36 through 50 those are the real problems and I'm fine is what the Pharisees and the lawyers, lawyers being people not like lawyers today but people who studied the law of God, the law of Moses and, and sought to apply it faithfully. And these people did not see any need to repent because they thought of themselves as being just fine. I hope that that's not your spirit toward God. That I don't need to repent. I'm fine because I grew up in a Christian family or because I don't have these terrible habits that people that we hear about in the news that, that cause people to go and kill other people in other parts of the city. I have nothing like that, so I don't need repentance. No, our greatest need is repentance. And as Martin Luther said, repentance is a daily exercise. It's a daily moving toward God and acknowledging our wickedness before him. This passage is urging us then to side with God. And I think often we're tempted to not side with him. And I I thought of two ways in which we're tempted to not side with God. One is when we make excuses for our sin patterns. If you were in this situation, you would do the same thing I'm doing. That would be an excuse for our sin patterns. If you had the circumstances I had, you wouldn't be thinking that this is so bad because you'd be doing the same thing. That is not siding with God. That's not acknowledging what God has said. A second way is when we're embarrassed, a second way we're tempted to not side with God is when we're embarrassed by the gospel, by this message that it's not those who live the best lives, who live the cleanest lives who get saved, but those who acknowledge their desperation before God. We're tempted to not side with God when we're embarrassed by the gospel or some element of God's ways and God's words. And what I would say is God himself is not embarrassed by anything that he has said or done. And so we as his people should not be embarrassed of anything that God has said or done either. Perhaps we need to work harder to explain what he has said or what he's done and do so in a compelling and convincing and biblical way, but not because we're embarrassed of it. Verse 31 through the end of the chapter, through verse 35, I'm sorry, I keep saying the end of the chapter, the end of the passage. It's at the very bottom of my page here, so I just kind of assume... That's the end of the chapter, but it's the end of the passage. 31 through 35 is Jesus then talking about what it looks like to reject God, to not side with God, but to side against God. What does it look like? And Jesus says, let me give you a picture of what this is like of what the people of this generation, and he's thinking specifically of the Pharisees, of the lawyers, of the people who think they have their lives all together and therefore don't side with God, they side against God. What are they like? They're like children playing a game in the streets. And maybe when you were a kid you'd play doctor or you'd play house or you'd play teacher in school or whatever else. Here they're playing wedding and funeral. And so the, it's as if the kids are saying, let me play on my flute, and when I play a happy song, you start dancing like you're at a wedding reception. Or, now I'm going to play a funeral dirge. And when you hear me play Beethoven's Fifth, that's whatever song you'd play at a funeral, I don't know. Um, that's when you get sad, and you cry, and you wail, as they did in Middle Eastern funerals. And so what, what they say here in verse 32 is we played the flute for you. Who's the you there? Well, we think it's for John the Baptist. We played the flute, but you didn't dance. You're walking around like the world's coming to an end. Like all of us have this problem. John, get with the program. We're playing a wedding song. And they didn't like what John was saying. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. Who's the you in that second half of verse 32? That would be Jesus. Remember back in, verse, in chapter 5, where Jesus is acting like, and Jesus' disciples are acting like they're at a wedding party, and the people were really upset. Why are your disciples acting like they're at a wedding? And Jesus says, Because they are! This is a party! Why would they do anything else? I'm here, is what Jesus was saying back in chapter, at the end of chapter 5. And so it's as if the world is saying, You're supposed to be serious, Jesus, get with the program. And he's saying, No. There's no reason for me to be serious because the party has started. Stop playing your funeral dirge. Of course I'm not going to weep. So what this is saying, this little picture here in verse 32 of these people sitting in the street playing their flute or playing a funeral dirge, singing a dirge. This is a picture of the fact that the world was not satisfied with what Jesus said or with what John said. Either way, they weren't going to like it. And it's not very dissimilar in our day. People don't like what God says. And this is why here at Brainerd, we are so committed to expository preaching, to the message, letting the message of the text be the message of the sermon. I hope you can tell, like everything I'm saying from verse 18 through verse 35 is just, I'm just explaining what this text says. I'm not trying to give you, you know, a particular angle on it. I'm not trying to put it through some particular filter. I'm just saying what the Bible says. And that's what expository preaching is. And so the reason we do this is because otherwise we're going to get off the rails. And we're going to start saying it's a party because the world wants us to say it's a party. Or we're going to start saying it's a funeral because the world wants us to say it's a funeral. And we let the world dictate what we say. But by being committed to expository preaching, we let God tell us what to say. And so the second that I or Clayton or Israel or we invite guest speakers who don't preach expository preaching, the second that happens, you can go ahead and make your way to the door and find a church that preaches the Word of God. But in the meantime, as long as you're preaching the Word of God, you should bring your friends and tell them, come and hear what God says about your life and about the world and about salvation and everything else important. Verses 33 and 34 interpret <clears throat> uh this little saying that Jesus describes in verse 32. John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. This goes back to chapter 1 where the angel Gabriel said that John the Baptist wasn't going to drink wine. He was going to be like a a Nazarite back in the Old Testament um, who who would not drink wine. So he only ate locusts and honey. It was like he was gluten-free. He ate no bread and drank no wine. And why would he do that? Because of who he was, because of the role God had given him. And they say, he's out of his mind. That's what it means when it says he has a demon. He's a lunatic. He's so different from everybody else. But on the other hand, the Son of Man, Jesus, has come, and he does eat, and he does drink. And they say, "Ugh, he's such a glutton. He's such a drunkard. Look at the people he hangs out with. They're the worst of the world. In other words, the world's never going to be satisfied. When you follow God, you can just be convinced of the fact that the world's not going to like you. They're going to find something wrong with your message or the, or the the way that you you minister. Jesus and John didn't do what the people wanted. They didn't tickle their ears. And I would just ask, do you only listen to people who tickle your ears? Or the alternative is when a Christian tells you, a fellow church member tells you, I'm concerned for the way you're living. A, I hope you're willing to say that to somebody else. And B, I hope that when somebody else says that to you, you're willing to listen. And you don't just go and find somebody else who commiserates with you and sides with you in your sin or in your rebellion against God. Gravitate toward people who tell you the truth, not toward the people who tell you what you want to hear. And these people in this passage were gravitating away from John and Jesus because they weren't tickling their ears. They weren't telling them what they wanted to hear all the time. And so what about you? Have you sided with God? Have you declared God to be the one who's right about who he is and about who you are? Have you, in the language of Psalm 2, kissed the Son lest he be angry, lest you face his wrath on the last day? Verse 35 says, Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And I think what this is saying is this is God's wisdom being declared to be true. God's ways are right. Similar to in verse 29, they declared God just. It's actually the same word in Greek. They declared God just. Here, wisdom is being declared to be true. God's ways are being declared to be the right ways by those who follow in them. In other words, the way you live is sending a message to other people about the ways of God. This is why. I just want to connect this dot. This is why we take sin so stinking seriously in this church. Because you are representing God. You are representing the ways of God to watching people. And if people find out, let's just say that I got into an adulterous relationship. May the Lord forbid that. And the other elders found out about it and were like, "Mm, that stinks, but let's just keep going. Don't let anybody know. And then word starts leaking out and word starts leaking out and everybody knows and it's kind of a big open secret and nobody does a thing about it. Okay, well that's what Brainerd is. Brainerd says God's ways are not true. Brainerd says you can live however you want. It's fine. And what I'm saying is We, as God's people, take sin seriously because we are sending a message about the ways of God, about whether God's ways are right or wrong. Wisdom is justified by all her children. God's ways are declared to be true or false by the way that those who follow him live. Does that make sense? By the way that you live, you're sending a message about whether God's ways are true or false, right or wrong, good or bad. And this is what Jesus is calling us to consider is that we want to prove God's wisdom to be right by the way we follow him, by the way we live, by the way we talk. We have a decision to make. John had this question, are you the true Messiah? Jesus proved that he was. John was the one who was preaching that he was, that the Messiah was coming. And now you have a a responsibility to respond by either declaring God to be right, saying that God's ways are the right ways, Or rejecting him and saying, I want nothing to do with him. The reason you are willing to submit to God's ways is because your whole worldview is shaped by his word. I just started yesterday's book called What is Biblical Theology? This is literally the fifth or sixth time I've read this book because it's so easy to read and so encouraging. But on the first page, I texted this to a friend who's reading it with me. That on the first page is this quote that I've probably marked the first time I read it, and so I almost have it memorized, but it says, What we think and how we live is largely determined by the larger story in which we interpret our lives. And maybe if you haven't read the rest of the book, that doesn't sound like it would be that significant of a statement. But what that's saying is, you live your life as part of a bigger framework, and that framework has been shaped by your schooling background. Most certainly by your home background, by your church background, all of these factors have given you a way that you view life, a worldview. And those who follow God, their worldview has been shaped by the word of God. And those who reject God, their worldview has been shaped by the world. And so this passage is calling us to let our worldview be shaped by what God says is true. And it is that Jesus is the true Messiah, and so we must humble ourselves before him. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we pray you would make us people who willingly follow you, who willingly delight in your ways and declare them to be true. We want to show by the way we live what we believe about you and that we believe that your ways are always good and always right. So Lord, give us at Brainerd a perspective on sin that matches your perspective, that declares you to be right, declares you to be just about these matters. And we pray we would do that about our own hearts and walk in your ways and in your wisdom. In Christ's name, amen.